Kabul, the war's over, but old habits die hard. The car bombers are back. Fusilier Lee Rigby, could MI5 have prevented his death? MI5 in particular knew that these two men were Islamic extremists, uh, but sadly so are many hundreds of other people at any one time that the agencies are investigating. And how close are the Ayatollahs to getting their bomb? Earlier today, a British embassy vehicle was attacked by a suicide bomber in the capital of Afghanistan, Kabul. The Foreign Office says a British national security team member and an Afghan national working for the embassy were both killed. Our defence analyst Christopher Lee is with me and we're also joined by Professor Paul Rogers from the Department for Peace Studies at Bradford University. Hello to both of you. Hello. Professor Rogers, first of all, the Taliban say they did it. Uh, I suppose not surprising, really. Not surprising, no. Uh, over the last three or four months, as the Western troops have been withdrawing from Afghanistan, the Taliban have hardly sought at all to engage them in open conflict. They could take two big casualties. They're tending to wait instead and try and maintain control of quite a lot of the rural areas. But they've also done a series of what you might, might almost call symbolic attacks to remind the Kabul government that they're still there. Mm. Uh, a couple of Americans were killed recently. There have been one or two very big attacks as well, uh, usually against Afghan security forces. And this incident, this awful incident this morning, is an example of a, a kind of symbolic attack to show they are around and they can operate really in the heart of Kabul. Christopher, a President Obama has announced that the US military will still be able to carry out combat operations in the country, even after the mission comes to an end. What kind of combat operations exactly? Well, you have two groups of forces that are left in Afghanistan. One are the people that do the training, etc. You also have to have force protection for those people. So that's part of the role. But the difference is that the, 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 the um, soldiers mainly, uh, and Marines that are left in, are, for example, infantry. They have the ability to run air operations. And so they can work with what is still a very fast-learning Afghan armed forces as well. And so they can say, right, we can bring down uh, close air support, which you don't have. Uh, we also can have access to um, to drones, or that, that's a political statement as well. So they're not running big operations, but they can certainly assist the Afghan army or the Afghan defence forces in their operations. Uh, Professor Rogers, you, you were saying this is very much a, a symbolic message targeting embassy personnel in this way. W what do you think will be happening into next year? Are we going to see more of these kind of attacks or, or might they actually die off, as it were? I think they might to some extent die off, although these markers can always be put down. I think Taliban and other armed opposition groups will be concentrating on taking and informally or even more formally controlling territory. One of the very interesting things of the last few days is a report which I think is reliable from Washington that the United States now does have agreement to continue the old issue of night raids, very controversial and blocked by Karzai a couple of years ago. And that would involve special force units that were actually active in Afghanistan, as they've been for a number of years. That's an extension, but it looks like the new bilateral security agreement is going to involve that. So as the New York Times said a couple of days ago, essentially, the war as a war is still on, albeit smaller for now. 
All right, gentlemen, stay with us. An inquiry says the murder of Fusilier Lee Rigby couldn't have been prevented, even though his killers were known to the intelligence services. But the report by a group of MPs criticised the failure of an internet firm to alert authorities to a conversation in which one of the attackers talked about wanting to kill a soldier. The FBS reporter James Hurst has spoken to the chairman of the Intelligence and Security Committee, Sir Malcolm Rifkind. Well, the intelligence agencies, MI5 in particular, knew that these two men were uh, extremists, Islamic extremists. Uh, but sadly, so are many hundreds of other people at any one time that the agencies are investigating. So what they had to try and identify was, uh, was there any hard evidence that they were planning to commit terrorist attacks? And that evidence simply wasn't there. Uh, because these guys were security conscious. They just did not reveal their intent uh, over the internet. The fact Except is... Except on one occasion, when they did. The fact is, one of them was taken off intrusive investigation six weeks before the attack, and had paperwork been done in time, mm. one of them would have been put yes. on intrusive yes. investigation a week before. That surely could have thrown up information. Well, it sh- well what it shows is that the inter- MI5 were very suspicious of these guys, and... Uh, came to the view on several occasions that further surveillance was justified. But, of course, they can't make that decision themselves. They have to go to the Home Secretary, and the Home Secretary will only agree to that if there is some evidence to justify someone being again and again put under surveillance. But the Home Secretary could have agreed sooner if the paperwork had been put in. That is absolutely right, and that's something we have severely criticised in our report. What we have been able to do, however, retrospectively is examine what were the uh, communications of these individuals during that last few days. And we have seen transcripts of a lot of the communications, and sadly they didn't give any indication in any of these communications of what they were planning to do. They would have had, surely, conversations in person. They might have even been seen going to buy the knives. Well, they, of course, must have had conversations in person, but they seem to have been so security-conscious that they were disciplined enough not to reveal that kind of intent whenever they were either on the phone or sending emails or uh, online messaging. You have identified one concrete piece of evidence that could have sounded the alarm bells that you say should have been offered up by an internet company. Is this passing the buck from security services to a commercial company? Uh, No, it's not passing the buck. It is saying that people have to act as decent citizens. If you or I heard evidence that one of our neighbours was about to murder somebody around the corner, uh, we would immediately feel an obligation to tell the police what we'd discovered. So what we're saying is these US internet companies, if on their systems they identify someone who's planning terrorist intent, uh, then it shouldn't be a question of begging them or legally obliging them. They should be good citizens like the rest of us. But the Prime Minister suggested in the Commons that actually their, their automatic system to pick that up didn't pick it up. It's not a question of intent. It's a question of, as with the security services, their system just didn't pick it up. Well, that may indeed be correct, but we have identified that this is just part of a wider problem, that whether or not they pick up an individual uh, item, even when they do, they do not pass it on to the authorities. They do in the case of child exploitation, for the most part. For some reason, they 
uh, seem to think that child exploitation, they have an obligation. Terrorist-related incidents, they don't seem to feel as, as uh, uh, much of their responsibility. And that, uh, we think, is a serious mistake. That was Sir Malcolm Rifkin speaking to James Hurst. Well, Professor Paul Rogers from Bradford University and our defence analyst, Christopher Lee, are both still with us. And um, Professor Rogers, that last point that Sir Malcolm made there, that they didn't, they didn't feel the need to pass on information, do, do, do you think that's true? Are, are internet companies really withholding stuff that they think might endanger the lives of people? I would rather doubt it, frankly. I mean, I think the internet, the internet companies uh, are in a bit of a quandary. They're getting incredible amounts of information coming through. Um, they do have the filter systems to try and pick up stuff which is in any way dubious. I don't think there's any deliberate attempt to withhold information here. What there may be is basically a level of incompetence. And the question is, do you require internet companies to have such a high level of competence that this is always picked up? That, I think, is the area of controversy and where they will probably try and resist the pressure coming from government. Christopher? The first thing you've got is the, say, the Liberty, the Liberty Groups, the Liberty Organisations, saying that this is really partly a cover-up of MI5 and MI6 shortcomings. And then you get into this whole thing, for example, Facebook, if indeed it was Facebook that they, they, they were talking about. It is the equivalent of intelligence overflow, mass intelligence overflow. When you think of MI5, for example, uh, what, 2,000 people? It cannot keep track of everything. See, there are going to be communications simply that slip through the net because neither the internet companies, neither the intelligence service can do everything. But there's the other side of it. I mean, what seems to be missing, and there's an underlying sort of line in this report, what is missing is a reliable and urgent fast track straight into, let's say, the Home Secretary, where they can say, listen, we think we're picking up this. Will you... Can we have, in principle... Uh, an order to investigate it further. That is the difficulty. But when you say, look, Facebook, will you, uh, can you, can you monitor everybody? They'll monitor as much as you can, but there's so much information now that some of it is going to go through, especially if you're not dealing with somebody who is really high, high on the list. You know, 24 hours later, they'd have been high on the list. Professor Rogers, what difference do you think it would make should the intelligence service be given more access to Facebook accounts and the like? It'll probably make some difference, not very much, but it doesn't really address the whole problem of why you have a very small number of people who are actually prepared to commit these awful acts. That is probably likely to rise. I think Theresa May, the Home Secretary, is correct that Islamic State as a group is more interested in that. From Islamic State's point of view, if you look, turn the whole thing around, their view is we are being attacked by the British and others, therefore we can attack them. And essentially, if we, we've got to look at this in a much wider way. You can get all the control you want, but it will never be complete. We have to move on and see the connection between this and a probably raised terror threat and what is actually happening in the Middle East. OK, there's one other aspect of this. A lot of the so-called terror organisations... And, their, and, and the people working for them, let's say in the United Kingdom, are now going into, not so much Facebook, they're going into very, very hard to find uh, uh, systems where they can actually get through, get information, get instructions, etc. And they're much harder to keep track of by the people that are running those websites. Gentlemen, stay with us. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, why has Chuck Hagel resigned and could national security be at risk because of the MOD's latest Manning strategy? This is BFBS. Sit rep. 
Talks with Iran to reach an agreement about its nuclear programme have been extended after another deadline was missed. The negotiators have given themselves another four months to get an outline political agreement, plus three more for a comprehensive deal. Earlier, I spoke to the investigative journalist Eric Schlosser, the author of Command and Control, the story of nuclear weapons and the illusion of safety. I asked him whether he thought a deal could ever be reached with Iran. I think it can, and I, I certainly think it's in the interest of the Iranian people that a deal be reached. If a deal isn't reached and Iran seeks a nuclear weapon, uh, severe sanctions will probably be uh, kept in place on Iran, and Iran will be a legitimate target for a nuclear attack, which they're not right now. So I'm hoping that a deal will be reached, and I don't think it's impossible. And do you think that can happen without the support of the Ayatollah? It's going to be up to him and to the other hardliners at the top of the regime. I think it's in the long-range interest of Iran not to have nuclear weapons. Uh, if they obtain them, they will have, uh, in their own view, a symbolic kind of power, but it will actually weaken the nation. It will make them a pariah state, much like North Korea. And certainly, you know, the United States never attacked Iran uh, after our hostages were taken, our diplomats were taken hostage, after many American soldiers were killed in Afghanistan and Iraq through uh, the use of Iranian weapons and forces. But if Iran has nuclear weapons, they really do become a target. And I think it's not in their interest to do that. It's certainly not in the world's interest. Sadly, the leadership of nations don't always act in the interest of their people. And I'm hoping that Iran chooses to re-enter the mainstream uh, of the world and not become a fringe state like North Korea. You, you made your points, but what do you think gives one country with nuclear capability the right to tell another it can't have nuclear weapons? Well, the United States uh, has reduced the size of its nuclear arsenal by more than 80% since the height of the Cold War. And the movement of the 21st century should be reducing the number of nuclear weapons and reducing the number of countries that have them. So I think the United States has every right to say it. We're a signatory to the treaty of uh, the Non-Proliferation Treaty in which we've promised to get rid of our nuclear weapons. And again, we've brought them down by 80 uh, percent. Iran signed that treaty and promised never to have nuclear weapons. They're already in violation of the treaty. And I myself uh, think that we should be eliminating nuclear weapons throughout the world. I don't think that two wrongs make a right. And the world would be a much more dangerous place if Iran gets nuclear weapons or if other countries seek to obtain them. Just remind us which countries do have a nuclear capability. Right now there are nine countries that have nuclear weapons and five of them are allowed to have nuclear weapons under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Uh, the five nuclear powers allowed to have nuclear weapons under that treaty are the United States, France, uh, Great Britain, Russia, and China. Uh, in addition to those five are India, Pakistan, North Korea, and Israel. And I just have to say in no uncertain terms, the more countries that have nuclear weapons, the more nuclear weapons there are in the world, the more likely one of them will be used and a major city somewhere will be destroyed. And we don't want to see that happen. Of course, you mentioned Britain um, having its own nuclear capability, Trident. Do you think it should be kept, replaced, or forgotten altogether? You know, I don't want to get involved in, in that issue. I think that's up for the British people and the Parliament to decide. I, I will say this. Uh, in the debate about Trident, 
the debate should not be conducted on the basis of what is the symbolic importance of this weapons system. It should be what is its utility as a weapons system. And that's how Trident should be debated. And I think there needs to be much more discussion in Great Britain about what these weapons are for, how they might be used, uh, what is their military utility, and not just uh, their symbolic value or their importance to Great Britain as a sign of prestige, etc. The investigative journalist Eric Schlosser talking to me a little earlier, and Christopher was making very fast notes during that interview. Christopher, how close is Iran to making a nuclear bomb? They're not immediately close. Um, let me explain the things. You always have to remember about making these weapons. There's something called uranium. You have to have uranium to make a nuclear warhead. When you get it out of the ground, it's called uranium-238. But the stuff you need is called, to get out of there, it's called uranium-235. It's only it's less than 1% in that mine, so you have to actually start to enrich it to get the level of uranium-235 you need. And what's now, the intelligence on, on how, how much is being enriched at the, the moment, to what extent? Yeah, the intelligence says at the moment that the, uh, that the uraniums have probably got under 5% enriched uh, stock. Now, that's OK for a nuclear power station, etc. But you've got to get up to something like 95%, and it is a fast fast track but 95 percent start making start making weapons and so it's not that far but that's the the basis of it if you start building for example new systems to make it uh, uh, cascades for example um, then you give an indication of whether you're serious about these uh, talks or you're not serious about them my guess they are serious about them and my guess also is the is the is the great ayatollah the grand ayatollah may be also serious about them uh, i reckon you may get something by june but you've got to put all the eggs all the ducks uh in a line and you've got to get them all at once because if you leave something out you can't get into the business of verification. You cannot get into the business of saying, we will do some work for you, we will give you back nuclear power station mm. uh, uranium, for example. Professor Paul Rogers, your thoughts on this? I think the Iranians are probably further away from having nuclear weapons than they were nine months ago. They have made a number of concessions. Uh, Christopher is, is absolutely spot on. I agree with him entirely in his assessment. What is significant is there are people on both sides of the divide, hardliners within Iran, hardliners within Washington, and always, of course, the Israelis are very suspicious of any deal. But the Iranians want it. The current low price of oil is not helping them with the sanctions as well. And I think there's enough pressure within Iran to do it. And I think there's enough pressure in the United States. It's proving difficult to dot all the I's and cross the T's, but I think, as Christopher says, it can be done, and it could well be done, in fact, uh, sometime in the next six months, maybe by June. Right, other events making the news at the moment. So this week, the US Defence Secretary, Chuck Hagel, handed in his resignation to President Obama. He'll continue in the job until the President nominates a successor, who must also be confirmed by the Senate. No reason has been given for the decision. So what is the reason, Christopher? Uh, if you go back to October... There was a meeting in October, a briefing meeting in, in the White House. And Chuck Hagel was talking a totally different language, perhaps to what Obama wants or expected from his advisers. And they have separate advisers, defense advisers in the White House. It was about Syria. It was partly about Syria. But you, you move on from that and you find that there is this feeling from Chuck Hagel that we've been 
all of us have been at war for the past 13, 14 years, uh, almost a conventional war, what we've done is neglected to think in future wars and that spending has got to go in a different direction, research has got to go in, in, in a different direction, perhaps. And there you have a major conflict between what the White House expects to some extent, what the Senate Armed Services uh, Committee all expects. And so Hegel goes... He wasn't on message, basically. He, he was on a different message. Mm. I mean, a lot of people in the Pentagon would say, listen, we'll go along with this. We really do. We've got to think about the future. I mean, the sort of things they're thinking about at the moment are, are maybe quite bizarre, but that was the case sort of 50 years ago. And things were, I mean, who, who knew about drones, for example? And that's what he is saying got to go, bring in somebody else. That somebody else comes in. The Senate, and don't forget, in, in the American system, a defence secretary is not a politician. He is brought in from outside if necessary. And so the Senate Armed Services Committee is going to give the new man or woman a real going over to find out which way American defence is going to be going in the next Professor 30, 40 years. Paul Rogers, who will that new person be, do you think? It seems to be very open. A number of people have basically said they don't want to do it because, of course, it is technically over only a two-year term. There was a recent defence secretary who actually outlasted George Bush and went in with Obama for a couple of years. But essentially, I think we're, we're seeing it extraordinarily open. And two or three people already said no. So it's not one that one can guess at present. The MOD strategy to use more reserves, contractors and civilians has left the country vulnerable and may have damaged national security, according to a study by the Royal United Services Institute. The report says the plan is not fit for purpose. Well, one of the authors of the paper is Professor John Louth, and he joins us now. Professor Louth, good to speak to you today. First of all, just tell us about what the whole force defence concept is exactly. Well, good afternoon. The, uh, the concept of the whole force isn't essentially that new. It's been an MOD idea for a number of years now. I think it can be traced back to at least 2008 and maybe before. And what it essentially says is that uh, the delivery of defence is a complex enterprise, more complicated than it's been for many a year, and requires a dynamic mix of regular armed forces, uh, various reserves, some sponsored residing in the industry base, other individual volunteer reserves, a number of folk with reserve liability post uh, regular service, a number of contractors who come to the mix through the companies who employ them, traditional defence suppliers and, of course, civil servants of various mm. guises. So quite a complex force mix, if you like. And you are concluding that these reforms are not fit for purpose. What's wrong with them exactly? Well, I, I think we need to be really clear-eyed. What we're saying, I think, in quite a measured report is that the idea reflects reality. I mean, it's not a particularly radical idea that the notion that there are more parts associated with the delivery of defence is quite right. You know, if we just look at what's going on in Afghanistan back in July 2008, small number of companies, 2,000 employees within two years, you know, almost 70 companies, 5,000 employees, you know, combined effort uh, by input cost of the entire overseas uh, military effort. But, but you are saying UK. that it may have that may be damaging national security. Why? Well, what we're saying is that the idea is good, but how it's being, well, the idea is a reality. The way it's being implemented 
is more problematic. Mm. Uh, if, we, if we just start with, with the literature in a way, a very basic idea in most business schools is that if uh, an enterprise is complicated, then you need a, a little bit of complex enterprise management to deal with it. So that's both uh, conceptualising the enterprise as something that's coherent and whole in the planning phase and then very specific delivery of different blocks that uh, come to maturity at the right moment mm. to deliver effect. I mean, you, you say that it's reflect, re- reflecting reality. The MOD's response is sort of saying along the lines of changes will deliver a fully integrated force using a better mix of regulars, reserves, civil servants and contractors to get the maximum effect from the budget and best meet the challenges of the future. The intention's there. Are you saying they're not going to do it? I, I think I am saying that, actually. I, I think... The ambition to do that and the need to do that is very well stated and properly understood. The ability to do that will force us into the realm of quite complex enterprise management. And at the moment, we haven't got a body that focuses on the whole force enterprise management. And we certainly haven't got folk at the top of MOD with those skill sets. Christopher Lee. Fascinating site we got through with the future of defence. We go back almost to what we were talking about Chuck Hagel a a few minutes ago. The Defence Ministry and the government has got to decide this. What forces and what is the future of government going to do with those forces and what sort of conflicts could those forces get into? In other words, we're going to start to rethink exactly what you expect to do, the great strategy, what sort of wars will you want to go to. I'll give you an example of what the result might have been. If today the Navy went along and said, we want to have two aircraft carriers, the bets are they wouldn't get them now. Um, and so if you said we want to do force projection, somebody might say, yes, well, OK. But somebody says we want to do uh, asymmetric warfare. The answer would be no, you wouldn't get them. And so I think what we're having to do is to think exactly what we're going to do with our forces. And that's the most difficult concept because the, the present setup, you can't just destroy it. You can't just replace it. Mm. Professor Louth, what kind of recommendations are you making? How can this be fixed, the situation? Well, I think we need a coherent plan that recognises that all of the ports, uh, the parts that I articulated earlier, need to come together at moments of crises to deliver traditional military effect. At the moment, we haven't even got that basic understanding at the top of MOD. If I could pick up perhaps on the carrier point as a way of uh, illustrating this, you know, the, the idea that we would just deploy uh, HMS Queen Elizabeth uh, as it stands, is, is, is kind of dysfunctional in that it will probably need a shore handling team of about 145 people from industry as part of this whole force concept. Now, those people haven't been identified. They haven't been recruited. We don't know where they're going to come from yet. Mm-hmm. So we may not be able to deploy a capital asset, a major asset, because we haven't thought this through properly. All right, Professor John Louth, Director, Defence Industries and Society at RUSI. Thank you very much for your time today. Well, on the subject of aircraft carriers, Britain's newest aircraft carrier could be used by American jets before British ones. A BBC Newsnight report claims US marine pilots and their planes will be based on board HMS Queen Elizabeth because of delays to the British F-35s. Christopher Lee, um, pra- pragmatic approach or Well, it is. Failure? Don't forget, the, the, the F-35, in fact, is an American aircraft, uh, Amer- American aeroplane. There have been a lot of problems with it. Now, the Ministry of Defence says there are no further problems. But, OK... And so four y- have been ordered. Well, well yes, but... It, it, but it, not you, as you many... Be, well, you'll have a squadron eventually. Uh, probably a squadron and a half. But, but not the point for quite is, a long time. Yeah, well... 
Well, not necessarily, but the point is you're, you're, you're coming online to have an aircraft carrier. As soon as you get an aircraft carrier, you've got to, give the, you've got to say to the captain, right, go out and exercise using it. Now, you, you, you take part in exercises. You can't take part in exercise unless you've got some aeroplanes, and you may not have the aeroplanes in time. So the natural thing to do is say, if we go to a NATO exercise or we go to an exor- a transatlantic exercise, say to the American Marine Corps, do you want to come and land on? Because we need the, the practice, if you like, the exercise to handling uh, aircraft handling, which we now get in a very, very big way because most of the teams, the, uh, the, the, the flight deck teams, are working in America on American aircraft carriers. Professor Paul Rogers, um, how many decisions about the new aircraft carrier are actually having to wait for this defence review that's going to take place next year? This is the real problem. It links exactly with the previous subject, the very interesting report from Professor Louth. The issue here is that we already have very major decisions taken and it comes down to home to roost really with the Navy. The Navy, as it will be in about 10 years' time, will essentially be a two-ship Navy. It will be able to deploy a very powerful carrier battle group and a nuclear missile submarine and not very much else. And this is actually going to condition much of our entire defence policy, even though we're meant to be reviewing it. Christopher? I tell you something. If I were an uh, eagle-eyed Whitehall watcher, I which would be, you are, uh, yeah, all right. Um, <laughs> I would. Uh, Paul and I, Lister Double Act. Paul and I will be going around uh, the defence shows, and we'll be watching which countries are in need of an aircraft. Absolutely, area. yes. Mm. And we would be watching, like, who, like which. Well, Indians are always in, in, in the mood to buy an aircraft carrier or, or something well, like that. Well, you sell one to China and then the Indians will take the other. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Now, I think that could actually happen to them. I mean, the Navy was sort of, you know, I mean, they would just cry every every uh, every Trafalgar night. But that is, that is what we're talking about, a complete rethink on how we use our forces and what government is willing to commit themselves to in the, in the long-term future. Christopher, you've got ten seconds to tell us what to look out for next week. I would... Something which we haven't touched on, and that is Ukraine. The, uh, the uh, secure, uh, the G- General Breedlove, is saying that the Russians are about to put a squadron of aircraft into Crimea. They've beefed up their naval support. Is... The Russian, are the Russians going back to running the Black Nine, Sea? Nine, eight, seven, that's it. We have to go, Christopher. Uh, speak to button. you next week. <laughs> bye bye. News, news, sport, sport, and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.